From a young age, Derek Emsley has been actively connecting people with environmental stewardship. At 16, he and his brother Kalen founded a tree planting company that sold carbon offsets to businesses. Derek founded Tentree, the apparel company that plants trees for purchases. And in just under a decade, Tentree has set new standards for apparel brands with environmentally progressive values. Based on its success, Derek co-founded Veritree last year as a platform for regeneration that other brands can use to create similar impacts. Named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for 2020, Derek has become a voice for a modern generation, one who recognizes the necessity of a brand that's earth-first, transparent, and community-focused. Derek Emsley, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell us how Veritree grew out of Tentree and a little bit about your background in agroforestry uh, and just so we understand how Veritree works. Yeah, you know, when I was I was in high school, I was about 15, my brother and I started a company where the idea was to plant trees on farmland outside of our hometown and and sell the carbon offsets that farm, that those trees that were planted would, would ultimately sequester. And so we partnered with a number of organizations that helped support us in that. And the idea was, okay, these will plant the trees. It'll be a great sort of story to tell. And it's a pilot project for ultimately a hopefully long-term carbon removal solution for these businesses. And, you know, ultimately it was too early. It was probably back in 2007 that we did this and, and it was, it was a little too early for the carbon offsetting carbon removal market. And so the business wasn't ultimately viable. So 10 tree was really this kind of evolution of the idea of, Hey, we want to plant trees, but we don't want to build anything that is based on funding. That's effectively out of our control. And what that meant to us was really like a government program, which at the time carbon offsetting really effectively was, or sort of handouts. And so Tentree was ultimately a business model that we built or a company that we built with this idea of, well, maybe we can create a product and a brand around that product that allows us to plant trees. And, you know, we were agnostic as to what that product was, but t-shirts proved to be a really powerful vehicle. Uh, this idea of people wearing their values, wearing a logo on their chest that shared something about what they care about and also shopping more ethically and sustainably. We were really, I, I consider it early in, in that journey. And so, you know, that business has, has been really amazing. And, uh, we used every product we sold as a vehicle to plant 10 trees. And, and to date we've planted over 75 million trees with 10 tree in 10 years of business. And this year, sort of our 10th year in business, we'll plant our hundred millionth tree, which is, we're really excited about, but ultimately your question was, and how did that, that land us here today with fair tree? And, and ultimately it was about three years ago, actually, when we started to realize that we needed more auditing and verification and transparency into the work we were doing, we were funding tens of millions of trees a year and we were spending millions of dollars on the, on this tree planting. And we were spending hundreds of thousands more traveling to the sites, visiting them, understanding the programs, monitoring the progress. And we realized that as we continued to grow the business, that wasn't a scalable approach. We needed technology. We needed a way to gather that data from the ground to audit it, report on it, verify it, all these different things. And and so for us, Veritree was ultimately a solution to our own need, which was 
we need to be confident in the claims that we're making to our customers. Yeah, and I think it's complex, the verification. It goes beyond monitoring a tree's survival. I mean, how do you measure biodiversity and wildlife and the whole ecosystem? That's is so important in in the in sort of the tree planting space. I think what what's powerful about a tree is it's tangible and it's sort of symbolic in a lot of ways. We as humans naturally have this sort of like emotional connection, I think, to trees. And and so particularly when you think of our ability to take action within the climate crisis conversation, a tree is this really powerful symbol and vehicle because it's a lot easier to understand a tree than it is to understand a pound or two of CO2 that's floating in the air. So for us, you know, tree planting is, is just the start of the communication. It's just the start of the impact. Really, if, if all it was, was to get a stick in the ground, that wouldn't have the long-term impact, whether that be carbon, whether that be socioeconomic and impact and things like that. So really for us, Tree helps us collect all that data and create sort of the operating system to pull in the data on everything from planting forms and field updates that are coming in, survivability analysis and different sort of updates on, on things like you talked about, things like biodiversity. We're partnering with some groups to test underwater sensors in some of these planting sites. We're collecting socioeconomic surveys and things like that to try to attach the impact to the communities back to the planting uh, th that's happening and things like that too. These are steps towards moving beyond thinking about carbon offsets. They are. I mean, I think you look at, broadly speaking, we've collected, we collectively have this sort of carbon tunnel vision that's, that's developed and it's understandable why that has happened. I think the power of carbon offsets is that it creates a fungible, tradable, financeable product that we as, you know, businesses, as governments can hold one another accountable to. But on the, on the flip side of it, it, it actually sort of makes us quite myopic with our thinking and our, and our focus around actually what climate mitigation and this sort of transition we're going through over the next 30 years will actually look like if done correctly. So it can't just be about carbon. It has to be about the socioeconomic impact and the, the impact on the communities. It has to be about sort of the impact on the biodiversity and the wildlife and the long-term habitability of the areas. Right. So having started this company to help corporations and businesses claim responsibility, what do you think is the role of corporations and businesses in mitigating climate change as you we were just talking about? You know, if you look at the, if you look at the IPCC reports and things like that, you know, there's, we're on this 30 year journey to prevent us from going beyond a degree and a half of warming. And, and the reality is, is we're on a bad trajectory. And if we've proven anything over the last, you know, 50 years, we are not generally good at collective action and any goals we tend to set, we generally miss. So it, when thinking about that, the, the question has to become, okay, well, what, what additional things can we do to make sure that in the context of that, that sort of 30 year target that we make it as likely of success as possible. And so to me, that doesn't just sit in the hands of the government. It doesn't sit in the hands of frankly, the individual, which a lot of times like things like carbon footprinting and stuff have sort of put the onus on the individual. 
I believe the onus needs to sit in, in the, in the businesses as well. And so when I think of the role that they have to play, I really think of it's similar to how climate mitigation is, is a transition. I believe it's a bit of a transition of business models. I think you look at the last, you know, hundreds of years of civilization, and we've generally had this approach to business that's extractive where, you know, profits king, and we don't really look at the negative outcomes of what we're doing. Over the last 20, 30, 40 years, whatever sort of band you want to take, sustainability has really become a much more um, talked about approach to business, which I would say is, is about thinking through the impact you're having, measuring and reducing that negative impact. And more recently, I think circularity has become a, a much more talked about approach, which, you know, if extractive doesn't really care about the negative output outcome, sustainability is about reducing the bad. I would consider just for simplicity that circularity is sort of about having no bad in the system. But to me, again, you look at where we're headed, you look at this trajectory we're on, that's not enough. And so for us, our belief is what we need is a restorative business model, this, this next evolution of this, where the, the purpose of business is not purely to do less bad, it's to do more good. And it's using business as a vehicle to actually accelerate our approach to climate mitigation. It's, it's using business as a way to actually allow consumers to partake in their ability to have an impact. And it helps us get to that end goal faster. Right. And having said this, what is the role of Veritree, if there is one, in making sure that corporations' actions go beyond working with you? Is that built into your model at all? It's a great question. I think the point you're making is, you know, is there actually a positive outcome happening if the partnering of Veritree is saying, look at over here, all we're doing with the tree planting, but so you don't look over here at all the stuff that we're not thinking about. And so, you know, I think this is, there's two points I would make to that. One is that I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that we are in a transition. And the reality is this doesn't happen overnight. This takes time. So the flip side of that, I believe, is that when we think of partnering with organizations at Veritree, we want to create really incredible long-term partnerships where people are really incorporating this into their long-term brand storytelling. But at the same time, that messaging has to be holistic. Because if it's not done the right way, if it, everything else won't change overnight, but if they're not taking steps in the right direction there, then it's going to be a disingenuous story. And that's not going to come across well for anybody, whether it be Veritree, that organization. So we tend to try, and I, I, by no means would I say it's perfect, but we try to work with the partners that we select to work with and that choose to work with us to say, this can't be the only thing. That's happening. We partner with groups that have a belief in reducing their negative footprint at the same time as creating a positive impact. Yeah. And tell us about some of those partnerships and some of the projects around the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so on the business side of things, we've been really fortunate. I, you know, when we, when we started the, the process to build Veritree, there actually wasn't a plan to roll this out to other organizations. But about seven, eight months ago, we had people really knocking on our door saying, you know, we want to partner with you. We want to use Veritree to sort of monitor some of our tree planting. And I think what we realized was there's such an opportunity to help support this wave that's coming around sustainability to make sure not only does it 
maintain itself, but it actually accelerates in a transparent, auditable, accountable way. And so, you know, for us, if I go back, it's like we planted a tree farm and it wasn't scalable. We created 10 tree to plant thousands of tree farms. And now we've created Veritree to create thousands of 10 trees. And so to us, this idea of bringing in incredible businesses is, is so core to what we believe is needed in the next 30 years. We've recently partnered with a plant-based protein that's called Vega. And with Vega, you're able to see their forest and where they're planting in areas like Madagascar and Kenya, where we're planting mangrove trees to support the local sort of ecosystems. We're partnering with, we've partnered with groups like SAMHSA as well to plant mangrove trees as a way to sort of talk about some of these other things that they've been working on. So ultimately we're partnering with a variety of different businesses in different ways. And all of these approaches are bespoke impact portfolios where the business has come to us and said, we want to take part in what you're doing. Help us create a really impactful approach to tree planting, but then going beyond that, help us create a really impactful way to weave that storytelling back to our consumer. So there are a lot of complementary initiatives, and I know they have so many projects, so I'm not sure if I have full understanding, but what role does uh, protecting the trees that we have and natural forest regeneration play in Veritree? It's a great question. I think, you know, you look at the, you look at the, forecasted need for nature-based solutions. And it's expected to be as much as, you know, a quarter to a third of our overall climate reduction mitigation. I believe that tree planting has a major role to play in that, largely because it's one of the more scalable uh, approaches that we have, but, but by no means is it a silver bullet. It, a big part of this also includes things like improved forest management, prevented deforestation or avoided deforestation, like kelp reforestation, coral restoration, like all these sorts of approaches to nature-based solutions play an important role. Right now with Veritree, our focus is on the restoration side of the equation, which is to say planting, restoration, sort of like it, it's, it, we're not focused on the avoiding of the negative, we're focused on the, the sort of planting and the rest restorative side. So long-term, our approach is, our belief is that if we can build this system in the right way to harness that data from the ground, because that's really what we focus on is ground truth and weave that into the overall ecosystem, we have an important role to play in every nature-based solution out there. And our hope is that we can do that. That's great. And many experts tell us that tree planting is only a successful practice if the right tree is being planted in the right place. So can you tell us a little bit about the process of selecting which trees are being planted and which benefits are being prioritized? Yeah, it's absolutely correct. I mean, the reality is, is that there's a lot of big claims going on globally that, you know, we're going to plant trillions of trees and the world can actually hold an extra trillion trees, all these sorts of things. And the reality is, is that if 10 years from now, we look back and we're celebrating, you know, our trillionth tree only to find out that a, a few million of them survived, that's a problem. And, and so th this idea of the right tree in the right location at the right time is absolutely core. The, the point I would add to it is the right incentives, because frankly, 
actually identifying the right tree in the right location is not necessarily the hardest part. It's, it's absolutely a major challenge because, you know, you generally want uh, native species. You want to make sure that you are not doing monoculture. So you're doing different types of species that are native to that area and you're restoring like a true habitat. And you want to make sure that that's reflective of what the natural habitat would be so that it's bringing back animals and biodiversity and things like that. But the key point in that, that final one that I made, which is the incentive structure to me is actually one of the hardest pieces of this entire thing, because really deforestation, a lot of people sort of view deforestation in a lot of ways as just, you know, whether it's big companies cutting down trees or things like that, but largely speaking globally, deforestation is happening because the incentives are not there for those trees to be protected. It's generally low income, small leasehold farmers, people cutting down trees for firewood, shelter, to make room for farming, things like that, because they need to feed their family. And frankly, feeding their family is more important to them than that tree in the ground. And so it's not just about getting the right tree in the ground at the right time in the right spot. That's a big part of it, but it's about making sure that the actual core incentives in the community are there to make sure that those trees are protected, to make sure that those individuals are educated on why cutting down trees has maybe actually led to things like soil erosion and poor farming practices and things like that. And then make sure that there's also the right incentive structure there to make sure that those trees are protected. And so for us, it's, it's a very holistic process to make sure that we're working with our partners on the ground to identify it, to make sure that, that this is all happening the right way. And we're exploring a lot of other new approaches to this sort of incentivization to make sure that this is, uh, these projects are long-term viable. I'd like to know more details about that. And as you say, you identify that deforestation is often caused by poverty and it leads to all these other things. I was curious about how when you're reforesting areas that might have recently had wildfires and then they occur the next year, that just releases the carbon back into the system. So how do you work to protect them? Oh, yeah. I think the other point I would make on wildfires is not all wildfires are bad. You know, there, there's a lot of wildfires that actually should happen. And it's a natural part of a forest to sort of recycle. And then it generally comes back stronger. The problem is, is that the vast majority of wildfires that are happening nowadays are, are human influenced or created. And so for us, the approach to wildfire reforestation is a few things. One is that you need to, you need to identify the right locations that aren't immediately at risk of, of burning down again in the future. Generally, there's enough of a buffer that it, it's probably a number of years before it's actually going to be at risk again of being burnt down. But the other approach is just to make sure that when you're re restoring these areas, you're actually planting different species. There's fire resistant species. So planting those in sort of almost like fence areas, making sure that there's, there's actually spacing, adequate spacing within the forest, like areas where, you know, fire breaks, where fires wouldn't actually encroach or pass through. And we've also done a lot of really interesting work in some of the areas in Northern BC, where it's about planting different types of species to sort of serve as like fire breaks around different communities to, that are at risk of wildfires during that season to help protect them. So actually using trees 
to create protective barriers for communities against wildfires using better, more flame-resistant tree species. I don't fully understand blockchain technology. <laughs> you really give a lot of details for, for people who are involved in supporting your reforestation projects. Just tell us the amount of detail people could get. Yeah, but I mean, blockchain as a whole is an interesting technology in that it, it it's very much in the early days of what it will become long-term. And so for us, the part of the reason that we truly believe in blockchain is a part of not just the tree planting space, but the broader sort of climate carbon ecosystem is because what blockchain's there to do is provide an open, transparent ledger so that anybody is able to make, see ownership, proof of, you know, survivability, proof of impact, things like that. And it's able to see it in open space. Right now, if you look at the climate space, there's a lot of behind closed doors uh, work that's happening. And as a result, you're actually seeing we're liable for different sort of fraudulent behavior. And it's not to suggest that this isn't all happening with the best of intentions, but, you know, when when a, one registry isn't clearly articulated or communicating with another registry and people are able to issue more offsets than they ever could have hoped to have created and there's not the adequate follow-up as a result, that's a problem. And so really this idea of decentralizing, making it that more open and transparent and auditable is, I believe, a really important part of our future climate mitigation because we're dealing with a global problem and we need global solutions to it. And blockchain helps us do that. And so for us, really, our approach has been to create the system and the operating system to be able to effectively record all the impact, all the updates in an open and transparent way on the blockchain. So our system really is designed to do a few things. First, it's collect data. And we've created our own technology suite, our own collection devices to collect data in, in low to no internet environments, multi-language, all these sorts of things with different encryption and sign-offs. And then we're also able to integrate other s solutions, things like satellite imagery, acoustic sensors, things like that. And our system's able to pull in that data and effectively aggregate it. So, you know, attach it to the right planting site understand how that's managed that data so that you're able to actually create a data-driven approach to planting, which I believe is so, so important in, in the long-term solution here. You're able to verify it and audit it. So you're able to see that data, understand, hey, you know, where, where are some inconsistencies? If this is a polygon that should have only held a million trees, but somebody put 10 million trees into it, is it fat thumbs and they entered it incorrectly? Or is it that they actually overplanted. And so the system's there to help sort of identify some of those inconsistencies. And then if it's, if it's simply a missed entry, then we can edit it. But then we're also able to see the record of those edits that happens and, and basically make a much more open, honest, data-driven approach to this. And then once it's verified, those, those projects, those field updates, survivability reports, whatever they might be, are attached to the trees or the field updates that come in. So then as a, to, to the, to answer the, the question you actually asked, as, as a, call it owner, a quasi owner or funder of the, that project or those trees, you're able to see all the incoming data that has been attached to them through the system. So that includes 
photo evidence, that includes survivability, that includes planting updates, any infill reports, that includes additional long-term sort of survivability and socioeconomic surveys or satellite imagery that we choose to sort of incorporate with each project. And at the end of the day, we're, we're agnostic as to what that collection is. We can we can push our own sort of protocol or approach that we believe is the right one. But if somebody came to us and said, I have a very different approach to or a different belief set around what needs to be collected, we can also make sure that that gets collected effectively too. And are the different planting organizations that you work with, do they communicate with each other so that they are able to learn from each other's projects, even though, of course, they're all different? You know, it, I would say the entire environmental space is a little odd in some respects in that there's a significant amount of competitiveness at a time when we truly, I believe, need collaboration. And this, I, I think, actually shows up on both ends of the spectrum, whether you're the planting organizations, the non-for-profits, the XYZ, you know, it's a sort of, in some respect, sometimes treated as sort of a, a competitive environment. And then same thing goes on, frankly, the sort of solution side of things like a Veritree or different technology solutions, because there's this general perspective that the size of the prize is so big here, you know, everybody feels like they can, should, or will do everything. And that includes footprinting, that includes carbon offset selling, that includes project developing, technology development, all these sorts of things. And so your question was, are the individuals sort of sharing this data. And, and I would say that not yet, um, but that's also a function of where we are in our technology implementation approach. Really, we need to make sure that this system is rolled out effectively within each group. And then three, four years from now, I believe what we will end up having is this incredibly rich set of ground level data. And what that means is that we're able to see where the trees are planted, when they were planted, you know, that using different sort of data models, understand, okay, what's sort of the soil pH and different things like that, you know, proximity to major city centers. And then what we're going to be able to do is create this sort of 360 degree data model around what creates successful reforestation. And if we do that, then we can create predictive modeling to say, where should we be planting next? And if we can do that, then we can actually drive and accelerate our approach to planting trees and do it in a way that actually creates a long-term impact. And speaking of technologies other than blockchain, I know, and I don't know if there's an element of the drone planting or different hydroponics or end drips. I mean, just tell us about the different innovations that might allow for Probably not with the forestry, but maybe you're planting in some areas that don't have a lot of source of water. Yeah, there's so many really amazing technology that's happening. There's some gene editing that's happening in this space to make trees. I don't know if make is the right word, create species of trees that can sequester more carbon and survive in lower water and different sort of like soil uh, type environments. Drone planting is a really exciting one, I think, because, you know, just generally speaking, the moment you get a technological solution into a space, the scalability of it. And the conversation around that scalability is really interesting. Um, you know, the, but I would also add 
drill planting isn't, isn't the silver bullet, just like nothing is a silver bullet in this space. My general belief is that if we do climate mitigation and sort of climate change, right, it could serve to be one of the greatest sort of what creations of wealth and transfers of wealth from the global north to the global south that's ever happened. And really the way to do that is by creating those incentive structures and an incredible way of doing it is through actually engaging these communities and restoring and, and actually getting them involved in it to create that incentive structure, which, you know, partnering with groups, doing small leasehold farming, sort of agroforestry, things like that. These create amazing opportunities. But the other technologies that we're really excited about, you know, there's a lot of talk around things like AI and that sort of area. I would say that my general perspective on that is that we're still in our infancy of even the data to actually run AI and predictive modeling in this space. And our hope is that five years from now, we actually do have this incredible amount of ground level data to sort of create that 360 view. But I think AI has a huge role to play in the long term. Blockchain and, and frankly, creating other fungible ways to invest in nature that aren't just carbon offsets to me is a huge value unlock for a lot of these projects. And, you know, generally speaking, I just think there's, there's so much happening in the space and there's such an understanding that nature has to be as part of our transition. And so I, I'm really excited to see how the landscape changes over the next three to four years. My name is Eveline Mall, and I'm an associate environmental podcaster with the One Planet Podcast. I study environment and sustainability at Barnard College. And like so many others, I'm often thinking about the ways in which we can still mitigate climate change. The conversation with Derek Emsley made me reflect a lot on the role of businesses in the fight against climate change. As we realize the dangers of blaming climate change on individual citizens, as has been the narrative pushed on us for so long, we start to look elsewhere for clues and answers. Why are we here? How did we get here? Where is all this carbon coming from? And most importantly, how do we stop this? These are complicated questions that are crucial to moving forward. It is easy and logical to look at how major businesses and corporations around the world contribute to climate change. In 2017, The Guardian reported that just 100 companies have been the source of more than 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions since 1988. So clearly, there is an issue here. The question is, how do we solve it? There are so many ways to answer this, including looking at the capitalist society that we live in that encourages infinite growth with finite resources, or looking at ways governments can limit businesses, and more. What Veritree is doing is giving the businesses themselves the chance to reverse some of this damage by themselves. But a few questions arise with that. The main one being, can we trust businesses to do this good on their own? And, as Derek mentioned earlier in the episode, how do we make sure that partnering with Veritree is not a distraction from other harmful environmental impacts? Have we lost faith in businesses to do the right thing? Especially given the structure of profit over people that we have seen so often nowadays. But companies like Veritree's are helping businesses do something. It may not be sweeping structural change, but it is definitely a step in the right direction, and all good changes are welcome. 
However, the narrative around tree planting has been wavering. If you have Instagram, you will have seen all the posts that say a tree will be planted for every story post or will plant a tree for every picture, which turned out to be fake or not accurate. So for a while, there was this bad or murky reputation that came with planting trees as a solution to climate change. But tree planting can definitely be a part of the solution. In fact, this very murkiness is what Veritree tries to combat. I personally find it encouraging, but a little difficult to look at all these innovative solutions that are arising as climate change becomes more of a threat. Electric cars, sustainable products, carbon offsets, tree planting, and so much more. It speaks to our ability as humans to innovate, create, and problem solve. But in the back of my mind, there is always the lingering question, is this enough? And I think that the answer, frankly, is not really. Derek touches on the disempowering narrative around climate change and not losing hope later in the episode, which is something I always waver with. I've found that the best way to deal with that is by always believing in my own impact, especially the positive impact I can have in the fight against climate change, while also understanding that a lot of it is out of my hands. There is a Jaina Stanfield quote that I always carry forth in my work in the environmental field. I cannot do all the good that the world needs, but the world needs all the good that I can do. And I think initiatives like Veritree are a first step or an important part of all the good that can be done. There is work to be done at every level and it is welcome at every level. And now back to the episode. So you were just talking about some of these technologies and some of the different ways you can take care of the trees and you referred to wildfire practices before. I feel like there's a lot of space for indigenous people in these conversations. So I wanted to ask, what are some of the ways you incorporate or hope to incorporate traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous knowledge in your tree planting and tree selection? It's, it absolutely is. We're doing actually some really exciting work in Northern BC, using some of the, and partnering with some different sort of communities. And actually a lot of our wildfire reforestation across North America, it incorporates different indigenous groups and in partnership with them. And so I think the thing for us is really about just listening and, and learning and understanding. I, I, I think the worst outcome here is that we, we come in you know, with, with our idea of what a solution is with our idea of what works and expect it to have the intended outcome. I think there's people that have been doing this for decades or centuries and understand to your point, sort of this, have this like institutional knowledge of what, what actually creates a thriving ecosystem and how to manage that. And so, you know, we're, we're partnering with some different areas in Canada here. And part of what I talked about earlier was these, like these fire breaks. And that's a project that's partnering with indigenous communities to basically plant trees to help protect indigenous communities, but also using this indigenous knowledge of, of how to do that as sort of a basis for the project. And so you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, but I'd like to go back a little bit to Ten Trees, because I think this is a great way to get people emotionally involved in their purchases and just tell us about it because it's really sustainable clothing. Yeah, to me, when, when I think of what we built at Ten Tree, a lot of people look at this as an apparel brand that plants trees. 
I view us as a tree planting company that happens to sell apparel. And so to me, when we built this business, we were agnostic as to what the product would be. Our view was if we create a product and a brand that gets consumers excited about the opportunity to plant trees, then we can use that as a way to fund the tree planting. So to us, all the, the two key actors in our, in our purchase uh, process are basically connecting customers with trees. And product's really just that vehicle to allow that. And so if we really want to create what we sort of believe is the North Star of this restorative business model, then really that vehicle, that product that connects the customers to the trees has to have as little negative impact as it possibly can. And so to us, our approach to product has always been comfort meets sustainability. And, you know, for us, it's, it's also about kind of providing product that you can wear outside and you can get outdoors with. There's this David Attenborough quote that people don't protect what they don't care about and they don't care about what they haven't experienced. And so for us, it's also about creating the community and the, and the product to help connect people with nature. So you look at actually what we do, we try to create the most sustainable product we possibly can. Our, our products are effectively 99% sustainable. There's still areas that we're improving or trying to get better zippers, things like that are really challenging. And my sustainability team won't let me say we're hundred percent. So, um, we're, we're about as close to that as we possibly can be. We partner with great factories. Uh, that, you know, we've been working with for years and years that uh, we really believe in and we built really a trusting long-term relationship with. And in addition to that, what we do is we measure and offset our scope one, two, and three emissions every single year, which from our perspective basically means from the seat of that cotton to the moment that that shirt hopefully decomposes or is recycled, we have offset the entire negative footprint of that product. So as a customer, you get to wear a product that, you know, there's effectively no negative outcome to this. In addition to that, I've planted 10 trees. And so that's really our approach to the business. It's our approach to making product. And really it's, it's, we're trying to showcase to the world, that this is actually a viable way of doing business. Well, it's beautiful because I think that so many of us, I don't want to say riddled in guilt, but we almost don't want to make a purchase because we think about uh, the whole supply chain and everything. So I think it's a, a beautiful uh, business model. And I guess as you look forward to the next five or 10 years, what are your ambitions for both Tentry and Veritree? I think what you said is so important. You know, I think the broader communication on climate change has largely been sort of guilt-ridden or sort of very disempowering. You know, it's the world's ending and how can you as an individual actually play any role? And so for us, when I think of the future of 10 tree, I believe that, well, our goal is to plant a billion trees by 2030. And 10 tree is going to play a major role in that. I think within the next five years, 10 tree should pass over a quarter billion trees planted, if not, you know, over 300 million. And arguably as, or more important than that, is actually trying to shift the narrative around climate change so that it's not focused on guilt. It's not disempowering narratives. It's actually focused on showcasing to a customer and an individual the power that they have, the power that they have to actually have an impact through their purchase. And also long-term, the power that they have to 
transition business models as a whole to a different way of doing business purely by voting with their wallet. Because truly, like, I think this idea of a carbon footprint historically has tried to take the onus or sort of the, the responsibility for the carbon or the environmental footprint and put it on the individual. And that's, again, very disempowering. I think this is totally flipping. The power is now in the hands of the customer. And they actually get to influence and push the businesses that they support to actually think with their values and actually approach their doing business in that way. So for me, Tentree will continue to grow as a really exciting business that I believe is going to have an incredible impact. I want us to continue to innovate and push the boundaries of what is possible within creating a product. I believe that in the future of circularity, whether that be compostable product or recyclable product and helping create the infrastructure for that, we're going to be rolling out some exciting stuff on that later this year and really just continuing to showcase what the power of the consumer is. And on the Veritree side, I, I want to see us with thousands and thousands of restorative businesses on board because Tentree's impact I, I view it as the North star of what a restorative business can be. And I want us to continually use it as our sandbox to showcase that, but it's impact this idea of 10 trees for every product we sell, will continue to go grow in, in a very linear fashion. If we can do Veritree right and create truly the restore, the operating system for the restorative business model and for the tree planting world as a whole. That impact can be exponential and we can plant billions and billions of trees over the next 30 years. Would you then move beyond planting trees? I know that that's quite enough to be doing, but to work on other carbon sinks like wetlands. You know, I, uh, my team has told me I have a bit of shiny object syndrome and I, I kind of want to do it all. But I, I think the reality is, is that we are tackling what I believe to be a big part of the solution. And if we do that right, if we are laser focused on this restorative sort of approach, you know, particularly tree planting, restoration, uh, you know, kelp planting, coral regeneration, all these sorts of things, and we do that right, then we're going to be able to step into some of these other things like avoided deforestation and things like that. But at the end of the day, I don't want us to go wide and shallow. I want us to go narrow and deep and do that really well and be a part of accelerating this forward as much as possible. And my hope is that by doing that right, we can help advocate for the businesses and the people that are really doing great work and we can collaborate with them that are focusing on these other areas. because. The reality is, is that, you know, going back to that idea that everybody thinks they're going to do everything, you know, we're like, we're at the early days of climate mitigation. And, and you know, the reality is, is that when that happens in, in any industry, early days, uncertain future, everybody goes wide and they slowly narrow in their focus and they become more great at that part of it. And so I believe that that's going to happen. And I think if we're, if we do it right, if we do create the operating system for the future of global reforestation, that impact is going to be incredible. 
I know, I believe so. And here's me going wide on a question again, because I've always lived in cities and I, I don't know how what your planting initiatives are within cities, but we're living in the center of the city. Cities receive the main brunt of uh, global warming and 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions come from cities. So we think about how we're going to be affected by climate change. So yeah, what are your initiatives? So we actually have recently partnered on a project that we call Tree Equity. And the idea is, or the, the premise for it is that there, there are areas within a lot of major cities that are effectively tree deserts. And what you see is that those are often lower income environments within the city. So an area, there might be streets with one, maybe two trees in the entire street versus the higher income areas of the city tend to be tr lined with trees. And, and what you end up seeing is as a result of this, you know, one is there's, there's a bit of this lack of connection to nature that gets created, but two, there's actually real outcomes of, you know, you, you see areas in cities that have less trees that are anywhere from five to seven degrees hotter. And, and so as a result, it, it creates a lot of these sort of like negative outcomes. And so we're partnering on some of these projects that, that are called sort of tree equity, which are about basically finding these tree deserts within cities and reforesting them and sort of planting trees in, a, in areas and engaging the community in that project as well. So it's a whole circle. I love this model. It's really positive and it's something tangible and it's so transparent. So as you think about the future and your own education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what are some of those important life lessons that you've had? What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? You know, to me, it ultimately comes down to trying, failing, and just continuing on. I think, you know, if there was one thing that I really learned growing up that I think has been critical to our success is that we have short memories when we fail, but we take the lessons and learn from them. And I think, you know, th this is part of my frustration with a lot of this disempowering narrative around climate change, what making an individual feel small, like they can't take part or have an actual impact is it prevents us, it prevents generations from actually taking action and realizing that they actually do have a voice and that they do have the ability to make change. And I think you're seeing incredible stuff happening these days with the climate strikes and some of the work that's happening there. But I think as well, you know, we need solutions and we need a lot of them. And so if, if there's, you know, whether young people out there that are trying to think about, you know, years ago, they were trying to start social media platforms and they were trying to start, you know, different like t-shirt brands, which is a funny way of thinking about it, but the world now needs climate solutions. And to me, some of the most successful entrepreneurs of the next couple decades are thinking right now about creating unique approaches to solving this problem. And so my biggest piece of feedback is to try things and fail and, you know, like accept it and actually like, you know, kind of enjoy it because failure is going to lead to learning. Learning is going to lead to better ideas. And those ideas are exactly what we need. So thank you, Derek Emsley, for providing solutions, transparency, and helping companies and individuals regain agency to combat climate change and promote biodiversity.
We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Evelyn Mall with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Evelyn Mall. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hengenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.